and welcome to Start the Week. Joining me today is Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Roz. The big news, of course, is that Emmanuel Macron has been re-elected for another five years. He beat Marine Le Pen, the Rassemblement National candidate, by 58.2% to 41.8%. Now, of course, this is good news, but on the face of it, nearly 42% of the French population voting for a far-right candidate is not good news. How are you feeling this morning about it? Well, I'm being determinedly optimistic, which may not be my normal position, but I think we've got to take a look at a couple of things. One is that the French population tends to want to kick out its presidents after one term, and Macron's the first one to win for a second term since 2002. Secondly, that Marine Le Pen has worked very hard to make herself look less like a far-right candidate. This is not me saying that I don't think she's far-right. I think she is, but she's, she's done a very good job of sort of repackaging herself. And Macron won by a higher margin than expected. So I think the story is about the success of a centrist, liberal, internationalist politician in, in arguably the most important country in Europe. And, and, and that's, that's what I'm seeing. Macron is an unashamedly technocratic politician. And he found in the last couple of weeks of the campaign that he had to switch focus, didn't he? That he hadn't quite appreciated the anger and the extent to which the cost of living crisis was distressing the French. How do you govern from the centre when you have pressure from the far right and at the same time you also have a substantial vote for the far left because Jean-Luc Mélenchon did fairly well in the first round, coming third, pushing Marine Le Pen very close and, and getting very close to her score. So with pressure from the far right and from the far left, what does he do now? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And and in a way, it's important we talk about Mélenchon because he's kind of the third person in this two-way presidential election. As you rightly said, he, he almost you know beat Marine Le Pen in the first round. It could have been a, a runoff between Macron and Mélenchon. Mélenchon is a kind of sort of Jeremy Corbyn type figure, you know, comes from the hard left, has a, has a has sort of devoted his life to the kind of activism that, that, that you associate with, with that. And so Macron, in, in the second round of the vote, had to try to get as many of the Mélenchon voters as he could, and by sort of tacking to a much more uh, sort of left-of-centre position in his politics. And it worked. If, if apparently the, the, the latest data coming out now suggests that about those Mélenchon voters sort of split about three to one Macron to Le Pen. But of course, he, he now needs to govern in that way. And France is facing a cost of living crisis of, of a sort that would be very familiar to people here in the UK. France has communities that feel left behind. France has deindustrialization. France has concerns in some communities about immigration. So a lot of things that we, we think of as perhaps uh, rather specifically British challenges are not by any means. They're felt by lots of large countries, particularly sort of post-industrial Western countries. So uh, Macron's big challenge for his second term is going to be to appear to care more about those more vulnerable voters, voters who are perhaps people who have not benefited from globalisation. But he has not, in his first term, managed to carve out a distinctive policy agenda. 
And Cass Mudder, the US expert on populism, said yesterday that Macronisme, if it ever existed, is pretty much dead. So his real challenge now is to carve out a kind of domestic policy, which, of course, has been made much more difficult by COVID, as for all leaders in the world. What do you think he should do next? What would your advice to Macron be? Well, uh, Macron is um, somebody who doesn't lack self-confidence. He probably doesn't want my advice. But um, in the unlikely event that, that he, he took it, it seems to me that you know France has a, a dynamic economy. That's something that lots of British people might might scoff at, but actually, if you look at the numbers, it's you know it's 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 got plenty that it, it can uh, sort of be proud about, and it has traditionally had a had a fairly kind of extensive welfare state. Where the challenge lies is is the sort of the kind of protected class. So so Macron, for example, was trying to raise the retirement age from sixty two to sixty five. Now, to anyone in the UK, that that might seem like quite a sweet deal, but this was being treated. By Marine Le Pen as a sort of ghastly assault on the rights of ordinary French people, who of course enjoy a, a longer life expectancy than people in this country. So I think Macron has to continue to bring in some of those slightly tougher reforms, but make sure that the upside of doing those things is felt in those vulnerable communities. That people understand that he's not raising the retirement age to screw people, but he's doing it so that he can perhaps be more generous with you know, training opportunities and, and employment opportunities for people, particularly the young, who historically have struggled to get into the fairly heavily protected labour market in France. Le Pen probably won't run another time. She's already run three times and failed. In a way, that does open up a space on the far right, doesn't it, now that she will be presumably spending more time with her pedigree cats. And that is potentially dangerous because there are people like Eric Zemmour, who is even further right than she is, who see themselves as potential standard bearers for the far right. Yeah, there's a sort of genie that's been unleashed from a bottle here. And Marine Le Pen has a fairly solid kind of party organization and she's got a lot of you know she's got a lot of support across different parts of France so that's a big advantage as anyone who's you know ever been involved with political campaigns will know but Zamor has managed to develop a huge following in a short space of time and then also within the sort of far right landscape you have uh, Marine Le Pen's niece so another member of the Le Pen family who calls herself Marion Marshall and she is sort of closer to the uh, Le Pen senior, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the founder of the National Front movement, uh, who is arguably a much more hard right character. So th- there's a lot of potential in this space in France, and, and it's not clear exactly where that will end up. There were also elections in Slovenia at the weekend, and also good news for centrists there, where Yanis Jansa, who has sometimes been described as a mini-Trump, was defeated. Tell us about what happened there. Yeah, so Yanis Jansa is a seriously kind of populist right-wing figure. He's been leader of Slovenia for some time. And uh, he's, for example, the only world leader to have con- congratulated Trump on beating Joe Biden in the 2020 election, which, of course, we all know it didn't actually happen. Uh, and he's been trying to drag Slovenia into the same kind of space that Viktor Orban has done with Hungary. And while Slovenia is not a large country, these things matter because if you have a whole series of EU and NATO member states that are basically undermining the EU, undermining NATO, 
Putin curious. This is this is a serious problem and a threat to European security. So it's very good news that he was kicked out by the Slovenian people. And he was kicked out by, I think, the Freedom Movement Party, which is led by someone called Robert Kulob. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about him? Well, he's he's somebody who has succeeded in doing perhaps what we hope the opposition in Hungary would succeed in doing, but didn't manage to do, which was by drawing together a fairly broad platform of voters and the kind of principal point being that they're there to kind of reset Slovenia's politics, to sort of reintegrate Slovenia into what might seem like a more mainstream approach. And and the, the kind of the specifics of the policy platform are slightly less important. And I think this is a lesson which, you know, arguably you could say that Macron has done the same, that to defeat populists and these sort of far-right populists, you have to be prepared to kind of reach across a fairly broad ideological spectrum and accept that, you know, you, you may not get everything you want in policy terms, but you're actually doing something more important, which is guarding against this this very damaging and divisive, you know, sort of populist wave. Moving to Ukraine, Putin is clearly trying to establish firm control of the South and the East, having failed to capture Kyiv. Is this just the end of the beginning, if you like? Are we now settling in for a long conflict? Yes, we are. If you think about the eastern Ukraine, the Donbass region in particular, the Russians have been there since 2014. So they're very well dug in. Their supply lines aren't nearly as lengthy as they would have been when the Russians were trying and failing to take Kiev. But also the landscape there is is uh, less helpful to the defender. So in northern Ukraine, there's a lot of sort of forest. It, it, it made it easier for Ukrainian forces to ambush Russian tanks and so on. That's harder to do in the kind of wide open spaces of the Donbass. So the, there's a certain amount on Russia's side there. Set against that, the Russian military is heavily depleted. Morale is dropping down. Uh, they're relying on conscripts, many of whom clearly don't want to be there and don't seem to be well trained. And if anything, the Western supply of weapons is increasing both in terms of scale, but in terms of variety. So we're now basically giving the Ukrainians what you would regard as uh, offensive weapons, you know, howitzers that can fire shells over 30, 40 kilometers, those sorts of things. So I think we're digging in for what is going to be a fairly lengthy conflict, but one where it ought to be possible for the Ukrainians to continue to perform in the way that they have done thus far. Meanwhile, in Britain, the Homes for Ukraine scheme continues to, well, shall we say, it's it's been very slow. There was a question that weekend whether it was deliberately slow or just incompetence. One whistleblower who has been involved in issuing visas to Ukrainians said that they were deliberately not issuing visas to children so that that meant the whole family could not travel. Do you get the impression this is just bureaucracy or is it incompetence on the part of the Home Office? Is this incompetence or is it cynicism? I'm drawn to the conclusion it's cynicism. From what I've seen, the Home Office often makes it deliberately difficult in the way it interprets rules and the way it treats applicants for all kinds of immigration matters. And if you look at the whole Homes of Ukraine scheme, I, I agree with the whistleblower who said it was set up to fail. It's something that looks good on paper. 
It takes all the responsibility away from the government. But it, of course, in practical terms, if it proves very difficult for any serious number of Ukrainians to come here, you can always say, well, you know, we made it possible. There were no limits. This isn't our fault. So it's always it's this sort of cynical way of making it look as though you're trying to help whilst ensuring in practical terms almost nobody comes here. And of course, Boris Johnson himself continues to be under pressure this week. There was a report today in The Times saying that Sue Gray's report is so damning that it will leave Johnson with no choice but to resign. We will, of course, find out eventually what it says, but not yet, and certainly not until after the local elections next week. Week. There was also controversy over the weekend when one of Johnson's defenders claimed that Angela Rayner was distracting him during PMQs. I was pretty shocked by this intervention. What was your take on it, Arthur? Oh, God, it's so depressing. So Angela Rayner, for the crime of being female and having legs, is apparently, you know, in a sort of femme fatale manner, you know, trying to sort of knock Boris Johnson off his stride while he's standing at the dispatch box. It, it would be good if we didn't have to talk about it, except that this came up in the country's most widely read newspaper. It's had a lot of play, and it, it does point to a really nasty kind of misogyny that, that sits there in elements of the Tory party. And, of course, Boris Johnson himself, he, he looks pretty, um, you know, if you look at the, his conduct over the years, doesn't suggest he necessarily has a particularly uh, respectful attitude to women in general. Obviously, now everyone is furiously denying that they would ever have said such a thing or they would have ever have had an opinion on Angela Rayner that was about her physical appearance and not about her work as a politician. But let's not forget that the Daily Mail has form on this. I remember that they once had a uh, their entire coverage of the very important summit meeting between Theresa May and Nicola Sturgeon focused on the legs of the two female leaders in question. So this is this weird, misogynistic, sort of trivial way in which the, the British media sometimes behaves. Speaking of uh, misogyny and trivia, I'm sad to say that Donald Trump will be interviewed by Piers Morgan this evening on the new channel Talk TV. One hesitates really to give much amplification to the either of these people, but do you think this will be in any way a significant moment? Well, I fear it, it'll it'll be made significant because Talk TV is 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 Rupert Murdoch's sort of new channel here in the UK. He's sort of been out of the TV game after having sold up Sky News. Of course, Piers Morgan, you know, who's been, shall we say, on a journey, former Daily Mirror editor, now culture warrior, sort of populist rabble rouser and, and always a, a bit of a you know Trump cheerleader. I'm sure it's going to be a soft soap interview where he, he goes on about how wonderful Donald Trump is and, and gives him lots of space to repeat all the big lies about the election and the rest of it. It's very interesting because it sort of slightly takes us back to what happened with the Marine Le Pen issue where you know she loses an election and the media coverage is all about how well she's done. And it's the same. Donald Trump is a man who lost an election, lost the Senate, lost the House, and yet the media continues to sort of report his every move, his every, his every gesture. And, and therefore, rather than seeing him as a failed sort of hat, 
he, he's he's basically put as the president in waiting of of the US. Now the government is trying to reduce the independence of the electoral commission in a bill that also included things like voter ID. The Lords is voting on this this week. This is quite a crucial vote, isn't it? It is. You know, the electoral commission is by no means the powerhouse that it should be. It it is responsible for for administrating and and running the way in which party funding is organized, for example, you know, donors, making sure all that stuff is kept clean. It should have a lot more resource and a lot more power. But instead, the government is trying to reduce its resource and reduce its power. And if you think about the scandals of Russian oligarchs funding British politics, the scandals of, of Chinese intelligence officers funding British politics. And I think most people would acknowledge we, we haven't got to the bottom of those stories. You know, there's still a lot more to come out. The Electoral Commission has almost no ability to investigate these issues. And yet the government sees it as uh, unacceptably independent. And, and it, you know, it needs to have its wings clipped even further. So the fact that the House of Lords is pushing back on this is really, really helpful. And while there was good news from France and Slovenia, there is less good news from Afghanistan, where, of course, Arthur, you have worked and the country is in a terrible state at the moment under the Taliban. There are now tensions with Pakistan as well. Yes, this is a sort of strange development because ultimately the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan could be seen as a success for Pakistan. Pakistan, as we all know, effectively bankrolls and founded the Taliban and has for years, at the same time as taking Western support, has succeeded in playing a double game with with helping the Taliban come back into power. But since they've taken power, you've had other militant movements then launching attacks against Pakistan. It's a very complex picture, but we we should recall that this has happened before, where effectively a Pakistan version of the Taliban kind of ran out of control and started launching attacks in Pakistan. This seems to be repeating. And then Pakistan has been launching airstrikes against Afghanistan. And so what ought to be Pakistan's client state is now becoming a sort of troublesome neighbor. For the ordinary Afghan people, this is just another chapter of the kind of endless suffering in which they are the victim of constant interference from more powerful states around the world. And this is something that you will be exploring in your new book. I understand it's coming out later this year and we can now see the cover, can't we? Yes. So my book, which is called How Britain Broke the World, is due out in July and the cover design has been finalised. And so I was able to sort of tweet that out. It's a book which traces the way in which British foreign policy from 1997 up to now has had a wider impact. And and, uh, at a time when We hear lots of people talk about global Britain and how Britain punches above its weight and how, you know, what a great and influential country we are. I've sort of turned that slightly on its head and tried to look at the ways in which Britain has had this major impact, but in ways that we probably didn't want. And I start with the Kosovo intervention and then I look at various issues such as the Iraq war and up to the present day in Afghanistan. Like, like anyone who's written a book, it, it's been quite a sort of long job and it's slightly unbelievable this thing might come out finally, but uh, quite exciting for me at least. Looking forward to an advanced copy. Hoping I will soon get one in the post. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you like, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Punker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ross Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor with Arthur Snell. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Rees. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.